The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. And I think an important thing for people who listen to this to understand is that there are lots of decisions that are made in developing a guideline. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Welcome to Annals on Call. In this episode, we discuss why there are conflicting guidelines. We reviewed four different articles, three from January 3rd, 2017 annals, Management of Acute and Recurrent Gout, a Clinical Practice Guideline of the American College of Physicians, The Long and Winding Road to Clinical Guidelines on the Diagnosis and Management of Gout, and to Treat or Not to Treat to Target in Gout. Our fourth article uh, is titled, When Clinical Practice Guidelines Collide, Finding a Way Forward, that was published November 7th, 2017. Joining me on this podcast is Dr. Uh, Terry Shaneyfelt, who's a colleague uh, and professor of medicine at the Birmingham VA Hospital. Dr. Shaneyfeld published the classic article, uh, Our Guidelines Meeting Guidelines, in 1999, He's devoted his career to evidence-based medicine and teaching that and is best known for his YouTube uh, collection of discussions of evidence-based medicine that have received over 3 million views. Thank you so much for uh, joining us on this podcast. Terry, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the podcast. We've referenced several articles that demonstrate the problem of competing guidelines. And this is not just the articles that uh, we're referencing here, but this is an increasingly common problem of guidelines looking at the same problem from two different organizations and disagreeing on one, two, or three features of what you should do. And I think in order to understand this, what the first thing we have to do is understand the origins of guidelines. And given your long history of talking about the problems of guidelines for over 20 years and being on several guideline panels, uh, there's no one better uh, to help us with this. So in your mind, what is a guideline? What should it be doing? And then we can talk about the problems of guidelines. Well, thanks for having me. You know, I think guidelines, you know, people have in their own minds what a guideline is. Um, Sometimes it's people can recognize them, but hard to define. But I think, you know, we should have a systematic definition that we can think about. And and the Institute of Medicine really came along, was the first one to to define what a guideline was back in 1990. And it's a, a loaded definition. And I don't know if we want to break each part of it down um, before we move on, but 
the definition I like was the original one by the Institute of Medicine, which guidelines were defined as systematically developed statements to assist patient and practitioner decisions about appropriate health care for specific clinical circumstances. Very loaded, but I think it implies a lot of important elements of what a guideline is and what it should contain. The IOM, and I don't know if we want to stop there and talk about that, or the IOM then redefined them again in 2011. Some parts of it, I think, are a little bit better. Other parts of it, I think, aren't as good as the original definition. But in, in 2011, they, they redefined them as statements that include recommendations that were intended to optimize patient care that were informed by a systematic review of the evidence and assessment of benefit harms um, for alternate care options. So um, both very loaded definitions and I think really imply what guidelines should be and what role they should have. So given the definitions, I know as uh, early as in the 90s, you've looked at guidelines to see if they follow this prescription. And in your landmark paper, many years ago, you pointed out that most of the guidelines didn't follow the guidelines for creating guidelines. That's correct. Um, Very few did. Haven't seen anybody come out and say that all of a sudden we're doing a great job. So one of the things that is important is, and you stressed it in both definitions, and that's evidence. And what do you mean by evidence? And what do you mean by systematic review? And then we can get in talking about the quality of the evidence. So I think, you know, both those definitions, which were both developed by the Institute of Medicine, use systematic in two different ways. So in the 1990 definition, they used the word systematic as being systematically developed, meaning there should be a methodology to developing guidelines that is followed and very explicit. The Institute of Medicine has gone on further to talk about what that methodology should be. But I think the key is there should be a true systematic and explicit method for developing them that is followed by the, the guideline panel, not just a bunch of people sitting around a table deciding what they think ought to be done without any method to develop the recommendations that reduces bias. So the hope is if you have a, a strong methodology, you'll reduce the bias in the recommendations, reduce the bias in the process. In the more current definition, they use the word systematic is just using a systematic review of the evidence, a meta-analysis, if you will, to look at the benefits and harms of competing care options. They don't really as much, unfortunately, talk about methodology in their new definition, but they do for the first time really sort of say recommendations really should be based on a systematic review of the evidence in totality. As I read guidelines and read articles about guidelines, many of them are based on either no randomized control evidence or weak evidence, uh, perhaps even just retrospective observational studies. And yet there's often a dissociation between the quality of the evidence and the strength of the recommendation. And that might be one reason we get competing analyses from different groups. It can be. So, you know, there are multiple ways or multiple reasons that guidelines can, can differ, disagree. And one of the important ones is the evidence base. So you, you alluded to maybe there is no evidence and the recommendations 
purely are based on expert opinion and different experts will have different opinions. The other problem that can happen is that the two guideline panels could just look at a different body of evidence, could have different inclusion, exclusion criteria of what gets in, um, could be different dates of the search. And I think an important thing for people who listen to this to understand is that there are lots of decisions that are made in developing a guideline. Everything from choosing people to be on the guideline panel to developing the questions that you're gonna to try to answer with the evidence review, to deciding what studies get into that evidence review. And it goes on and on and on. Hundreds, if not thousands of decisions have to be made when writing a guideline. And all decisions can be influenced um, by the value structure of the folks sponsoring the guideline and by the people on the guideline. So it can be lots of different levels that leads to um, reasons that guidelines might disagree and why one guideline might be preferable over another. Nietzsche famously said, there are no facts, only interpretation. And we worry a lot about conflicts of interest, but most guideline panels only see as a conflict of interest, a financial conflict of interest. Right. Yet some have written that there are plenty of other conflicts of interest. Maybe you could give us some examples of uh, those. Conflicts of interests are, are very interesting, I think, to deal with in a guideline. There's the extreme views that we should try to get rid of conflicts of interest completely on a guideline panel, which I'm not sure that can be done. And I think most of those folks who call for that probably mostly consider the financial at conflict of interest only, because you could find people, I guess, who haven't received money in some fashion from pharmaceutical industry or device manufacturers or something like that. So that's probably doable. Um, but as you alluded to, there are other conflicts of interest that I think, number one, some are totally unrecognized by people that they have them, and we all have conflicts in one way or another. So they're intellectual conflicts of interest, and this can apply to the specialty that you're in. And somebody who's a urologist might think about approaching prostate cancer just differently than a primary care physician might think about approaching it. There's also, I think, intellectual conflicts at another level that might be related to the research that you do on a particular topic that you really are so invested so heavily in a knowledge base or improving the knowledge base of a certain area that you're, you're conflicted and maybe not open to seeing some alternative views. There are also conflicts and, and potentially conflicts of you know who develops or who's paying for the guideline to be developed. They, they aren't free to develop. Somebody has to pay for them. And you could imagine if their sponsor, whatever organization is sponsoring them, may be either overtly or sort of subconsciously using a guideline to improve that organization's stake or in, a, in an area, um, to improve maybe their importance in an area. Um, even though it's not very explicit that they're doing that by putting them out, guidelines carry such weight in society um, that just putting one out automatically gives you a little bit greater stance in that particular topic. And then I think also you can think about some groups who might develop a guideline. Let's say a government agency may have a, a different conflict of wanting to, and, and I'm just using this example, I'm not saying it's what these guidelines do, but maybe limiting care and limiting costs of care um, since they're a payer and um, they come at it from that sort of bias and potential conflict of when they develop their guidelines. So 
there's lots of different conflicts. Um, I think the, the easier ones are to at least recognize and to identify are the financial ones. It becomes a little more complex when you start thinking about the other types of conflicts of interest um, and trying. And I think excluding them is the wrong way to go about it. I think balancing conflicts is probably a much more tenable way to deal with conflicts of interest. Um, because if you think about, you know, the, the leading minds in a certain area are very likely to be getting research grants in that area um, to potentially um, be on speakers bureaus and things like that. So you don't want to lose out on their knowledge and expertise, but you just have to think about ways you're going to deal with their conflicts. And there are some ways that have been written about to deal with them probably fairly effectively. Let's talk about, we now have a guideline and let's say the, the evidence base is weak at best, and yet they come out with a strong recommendation. Mm-hmm. What's the danger of that? It, it's an interesting paradox, right? So as a, as a practicing clinician, the time where you need help is when there isn't strong evidence on something. You need guidance in what to do when there aren't studies to tell you what to do. So it's a paradox that you would think, well, shouldn't a guideline be the best or best used at a time when there isn't evidence on something. I don't need somebody to tell me to use an ACE inhibitor and heart failure. There's many studies proving that I should do that. But the paradox there is that a guideline has such importance and gets, and many of them get converted into quality measures and physicians get judged against that. And if the evidence base is very poor in that area and we're relying on expert opinion only, that's a problem because again, when you see conflicting guidelines, one of the reasons they could conflict is the composition of the panel and different experts. We have lots of data on this. Different experts will recommend different things looking at the same data even. Um, and so the, the danger is, is when there isn't evidence on something, we shouldn't be developing a guideline on that. We should be doing something else and going back really sort of to what we used to have before guidelines was consensus statements. Um, where expert panels were convened and came out with statements of what those experts feel should be done with a given topic. Um, But those statements don't hold the weight of a guideline and the danger of developing quality measures from recommendations that aren't based on anything but expert opinion. So another thing that I've wondered is A lot of times we just have a recommendation, but if you went to an expert opinion system, you might have a lack of consensus and have a majority Mm -hmm. and a minority report. And then we'd be left with knowing what the options are, uh, but having to use our clinical judgment because guidelines never seem to quite fit every single clinical situation that I deal with or you deal with. No, they're for the average person who usually has one disease. I don't take care of a lot of people who only have one disease. And it's really difficult to develop a guideline based on age and multimorbidity. And so they really need to be thought about as something that, and and one of the reasons I like the first IOM definition is they were very explicit in saying they're designed to assist patient and practitioner decisions. They're not there to be the patient and practitioner decision, which unfortunately many of them get converted into quality measures and all of a sudden drive you to do things because you want to have a good report card. Or if some of your pay is um, held hostage based on your quality metrics, um, you want to make sure you're meeting those quality metrics. And, and paradoxically, following the guidelines can actually 
cause more harm than good. Patients have competing medical problems uh, for which um, doing something in one guideline would actually be harmful for their other problems. So I think always guidelines should be assistive statements. They're not meant to be rules. And any good clinician should know that you have to use clinical judgment um, and um, understand your patient, understand the clinical circumstance, all their comorbidities and other medications when making a judgment about using a guideline or not. Let's sort of finish this by going to this controversy in the gout guidelines. And I've done podcasts on this previously. ACP, when they wrote their gout guidelines, said there's no evidence that when you're trying to lower the uric acid that with allopurinol, that titrating to a target of below six is any better than just giving allopurinol and seeing what happens. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then if they have more gout, then you might increase the allopurinol dose. The rheumatologists came back with a very strongly worded uh, statement saying that this is all wrong because we have all this other physiologic evidence that getting the uric acid below six makes a difference. Um, so one of the problems here is both sides have a lack of evidence. And, and one says, well, uh, logic and physiology says we should go one way. And the other says, well, the lack of evidence is evidence uh, is not evidence for doing something. And so therefore they go a little more conservative. Th- this conflict is in the process of being resolved with a study and everybody on both sides of this discussion is trying to do the right thing. And I know a lot of these people, but we see this in a lot of fields that uh, people don't know what to do with the lack of evidence. And some people say the lack of evidence for is evidence against. And then other people say, well, but we have all this other stuff. How do you put that together? And do you have any solutions for this? Yeah, so it's, you know, it's interesting when I read these two guidelines initially, I didn't pay much attention to sort of dates of the publication of some of the studies that were used. And it, it made me realize and think about why sometimes guidelines can disagree. So some of the information included in the rheumatology guideline was just published after the ACP guideline was published. So that's a great example of some more information coming along that can shape a guideline. And one of the things that that guidelines should undergo is regularly updating. Um, There was a sort of a a death curve, if you will, or an expiration date of study of guidelines. And and most of them are outdated for sure by five years. And this study was done a while ago. So I bet that number is even a little bit less now. So one of the things when I see conflicting guidelines, one of the things I look at is, is there just a difference in the evidence that was looked at? We ignore that a little bit and look at the rheumatologist sort of arguing that it makes clinical sense that if we can lower uric acid, we certainly have known that we see less gout attacks. So it makes sense to treat to some targets since we know there's a level of uric acid below which we believe that very few people will have gout attacks. So it makes physiologic sense. The interesting thing, you know, and, and one of the things that you'll see when you read guidelines is the evidence is graded. And it reflects the fact that not all evidence is created equal. You mentioned randomized controlled trials. They're higher up in the evidence hierarchy than an observational study. What's at the very bottom of those evidence hierarchy? It's interesting. It's expert opinion and sort of physiology lab studies. 
So the funny thing is at the very top of the evidence hierarchy is a guideline and many guidelines, which is supposed to be the peak of evidence translation relies on something that's at the very bottom of the evidence pyramid, which really doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So I think guideline developers, I think need to be very cognizant of making recommendations based on physiologic evidence or expert opinion only without there being well-conducted clinical trials and not calling them a guideline. You can have it in your guideline document, but I think you need to be very explicit in saying this is expert opinion. This is a consensus statement. Um, this is not a guideline. Others may disagree with what we're about to say. I think it needs to be made very clear so that some government body or an or healthcare organization doesn't take every single thing that's in a guideline and try to convert it into some quality metric to judge the healthcare system against and physicians against, because you cannot expect if there's no evidence for something to assume that just because somebody said it works, that will actually have the desired impact in clinical care and might have just the exact opposite uh, without it being studied. So I think that the, the, we've mentioned this earlier, the danger is that these guidelines do get converted into quality measures. And I think we shouldn't be making quality measures based on opinions that might vary based on the value structure of the guideline development panel making them. And so I think just the, the simple solution, which really isn't all that simple, unfortunately, is just to quit calling things that are based on opinion or very low level evidence guidelines. They need to be rebranded as a consensus statement or an expert opinion paper, whatever you want to call them, but they shouldn't be labeled a guideline. So... You might have told, I'm going to put words in your mouth and, and you can agree or disagree. You might have told both groups that there's not enough evidence to say how to use allopurinol and that there are differing opinions of whether you should try to titrate below it. But this problem requires more study and we can't tell you for sure what to do. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a very reasonable approach and probably the prudent approach is to take that position. Clinicians always use their clinical experience. I think many of us check uric acid levels and try to lower them in people who keep having gout flares. But, you know, until we know that that is a proper approach versus just starting somebody on the highest tolerated dose of allopurinol or whatever other drug you want to use to lower uric acid, we'll never know which is the right way to do it. Um, there's certainly costs incurred by bringing people back repeatedly and and checking labs and seeing them in the office versus the approach of saying, let's, you know, based on renal function or tolerability, what's the highest dose we can give this person and we'll call it a day. We don't know the answer, I don't think, to that question. Well, Terry, I can't thank you enough for um, having what is a really important, somewhat philosophical, somewhat evidence-based and somewhat experiential discussion I know you've been on guideline panels and you've seen them done right and you've seen them done wrong. Yes. Uh, and uh, that's why we really need your, your expertise here. You and I did write a paper a while back saying that this continues to be a problem, doesn't seem to be getting any better. Many people should uh, take this extremely seriously because of the potential harms of using expert opinion as a proxy for we know the right thing to do because there's just too much evidence that the experts have gotten it wrong too many times. That's correct. Thanks so much. Thank you.
Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. As you can tell from this wide-ranging discussion, there are many reasons uh, that we can have conflicting guidelines. As Dr. Shanefeld made clear, the guideline process is very complex and requires a lot of decisions. The structure of the panel is important. The people on the panel and their values are important. And thus we are faced with the dilemma of guidelines that do not always line up well. This is an ongoing problem, and we hope that by listening to this podcast, you have a better understanding of why we get differing opinions from differing groups. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.